welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in on this Friday, November the 22nd. Hope you're having a good week. Don't know what your plans are for uh, next week uh, with Thanksgiving. We will be off for the show and we'll return back on December the 2nd. So uh, hopefully you have a great uh, holiday week next week. Spend time with your family, eat a lot of food, enjoy yourselves, and then we'll be back at it uh, with, uh, with the rest of the country as most go back to work on Monday, December the 2nd. We will be back in action and uh, coming to you uh, live again on Monday, December the 2nd. Um, wanted to start off the show today with an interesting uh, article uh, by John Arnold. And uh, this was uh, uh, from Goal.com. And uh, the, art- the headline of the article says, Why aren't there more black coaches in American soccer? Uh, Many African-American coaches feel pressure not only to get results, but to succeed so their peers get more opportunities. What needs to change? This was published yesterday at Gold.com. Robin Fraser just wants to coach. The Colorado Rapids job has given him more than enough to worry about. It's not easy for anyone to get a head coaching job in the first division. And if you lose one of those jobs like Fraser did in 2012 after a two-season stint with Chivas USA, it can be difficult to get one of those roles again. So you can see why Fraser wanted to put his head down and get to work when he was hired by the Rapids in August. Seven years after his last head coaching chance. As much as Fraser wants to be seen as any other soccer coach, one who helped the Rapids get the game away from the playoffs despite his predecessor starting the season on an 11-match winless run, he feels an additional pressure as a black head coach who hopes to pave the way for others to follow. I do think that there's a responsibility. The responsibility is to do well and be successful. He told Goal shortly after being hired. In other words, excuse me, in, in other sports, in other leagues, there were no black coaches and in the 40 years I've seen where it's now gone the other way. And in some instances, there are more black coaches. But it starts by, be, by a black coach being successful. There's certainly a desire to do well because I know it would open doors for other people. The pattern repeats itself in all divisions of American soccer. A lack of black peers leads to more weight on the shoulders of the black coaches who are into the game. I think as coaches, we always put a lot of pressure on ourselves, and the job comes with a lot of pressure, but I'm also sensitive to what that means to other people like me. Tulsa Roughnecks coach Michael Nsien, who has the only black coach in the USL championship, was highest-ranking black coach in pro soccer prior to Fraser's hiring told goal before the season. I feel the pressure that I need to do well for my own career to keep going, but also for other guys to get more opportunities. Some friends have been pretty direct about that saying, Hey, we need you to do well. People need to see a guy like you achieving and players relating to you because that'll open up doors for other people. During the 2019 season, Goal spoke with more than a dozen black members of the North American soccer community to explore why the doors Fraser and Insian are trying to open aren't already further ajar for capable coaches of color. In 2017, there were 65 African-American players in MLS, making up 10.5% of the league's player pool. That's actually a dip from past seasons with nearly a quarter of the league's players being black in the 2012 season. That number could be on the rise again as soccer gains more cultural cachet. Former U.S. national team forward Edson Buttle told Goal he used to hide the fact he was a soccer player. Now it's cool to be seen in a team shirt or rocking Adidas Sambas. The stereotypical arrogant European soccer player that we see and know so well That doesn't exist in America until Instagram and these young kids, Buttle said. 
Even a fair number of players with that swagger that can translate well into leadership roles don't want to become coaches after their playing career. And many who want to stay in the game elect to pursue opportunities in broadcasting or on the business side of the game as agents or executives. For me, the biggest reason why you don't see many blackhead coaches in the league is because we're few in numbers. RSL assistant coach Tyrone Marshall said early in the season, it's being in the right place at the right time and getting an opportunity to step in and showcase your talent. Still, there are plenty of players who want to get into coaching but find it difficult to put that talent Marshall mentions on display. Buttle is uh, is from a soccer family. That's Edson, as in Edson Arantes do Nascimento, a.k.a. Pele. His father made a career as a youth coach in New York, and Buttle inspired, aspired to enter that world as well. After a playing career in which he played for the U.S. in two games at the World Cup and was named team MVP as the LA Galaxy won the 2010 Supporter Shield and lifted MLS Cup in 2012, Buttle thought the transition to coaching would come easily, especially after completing his B license while he was still playing. Now 38, Buttle says he was trained how to play the game of soccer, but didn't know how to play the game of the industry. Not knowing how to shake the right hands, how to get in touch with the right people, or which emails to pay attention to after he retired in 2015. Those little details in the corporate world outside soccer, I just maybe didn't pay attention or was just so focused on working with my dad that I didn't even think about how to go about becoming a coach in MLS, he said. Already during his playing days, Buttles, Buttles says he had to become accustomed to being the only black person in the room, something he said stifled his personality in the locker room and even his creativity on the pitch. You can't reach maximum potential if you're trying to act like you're someone else, he said. That hinders who you are on the field. Then you need a coach that kind of looks like you to inspire you. I'd use Rod Gullet as an example. He played my position and not just looks. He's a black guy, but I had him on my wall. He taught me a few things, and all of a sudden I'm scoring all these goals. Not having someone who looks like you on the top kind of hinders the people on the bottom. It's like... I'm not going to be a head coach or I'm never going to be the poster child of U.S. soccer because he doesn't look like me. You just kind of quit. So you're so close, but you quit because you feel inferior because the people up top don't look like you. Buttle, who works with his father's Golden Touch organization and still has aspirations to coach, also is exploring opportunities with player management, hoping to stay in the game he loves but unsure exactly how. Buttle's story is just one example of players looking to break into the game's upper echelons encountering roadblocks that may not apply to coaches from other backgrounds. The majority of sources Gull spoke to for this story say they have not encountered overt racism, but rather feel the lack of black coaches at top teams is down to less sinister forces like simple inertia. It's not something I feel I have run into in a very obvious way. I feel like I've had some, you know, really good opportunities, and I don't know that I've been discriminated against, said Clint P., former head coach of the USU 15, who now is on Dave Sarkin's North Carolina FC staff. While P. says he hasn't run into many barriers, he can see how the system works against people of color who might not have formed the same relationships with owners, head coaches, or academy directors their white counterparts did whether it's blatant or maybe just like something that just normally happens people of color black coaches maybe in the scope of who they mingle with and are close with maybe they've just been looking the other way because people tend to go with people they trust and know and maybe there's just a disconnect between that between those making the decisions and the coaches pursuing opportunities he said and we'll get back to uh, some of that later in the show. But um, I found it to be a very relevant topic um, and, and something that, that we talk about in a different way on the show, uh, not directly um, with black coaches, but more so along the lines of gatekeepers and why it is important that our system is open and accessible because when you have a closed system of gatekeepers, 
you create an environment where it is more likely that people of color, minorities, black coaches, whatever terminology or people group you want to talk about, you create a culture, you create an environment, and it may not be intentional. It may not be overt, but it is a byproduct of a closed system. And what these guys are are identifying as they're talking through this situation is it may not be nefarious. It may not be something that people are intentionally trying to lock them out, but the system naturally creates these situations. That's why we need to open things up. We need to be more inclusive We need to be proactive about inclusivity. That's the key. Proactivity. Don't just wait and expect one day maybe it'll get there. But we be proactive and we say, look, let's find ways to do it better. Let's find ways to be proactive and open things up and ensure that merit matters not the color of your skin. Our sponsor this half hour is Ductic Brand, D-U-K-T-I-G brand.com. Go there, order your coaching journals, your player journals, um, your winter gear. Use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your order. Again, that is ductickbrand.com and use the promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off of your next order at ductickbrand.com. We'll be right back after this with John Mata. into the show on this Friday, November the 22nd. We are pleased to be joined by John Mata. He is the president of U.S. Adult Soccer Association, battling a a little bit of a cold, but uh, being a trooper. Thanks, John, for coming on the show. How are you this morning? Oh, I'm doing well, except for the, uh, the cold you just mentioned. Well, uh, I was in, I was in Amsterdam a couple weeks ago and um, and and got a little bit of a head cold and uh, went to try to find some medicine and it was all in Dutch and usually I use my Google Translate app to uh, to try to you know read menus and things because uh, my Dutch is is. I really don't have any Dutch. And um, <laughs> so I'm trying to, to, to stand in the in the drugstore reading off of my phone and translate. And uh, I, I could read enough. It wasn't quite working. And so I, I could read enough to see something about nose, possible congestion. And I was like, well, I'm pretty sure that's not diarrhea medicine. So I'm going to try to take it, get through it. And uh, it helped a little bit. And then uh, when I got back to the States... Uh, 
my my wife met me at the airport with uh you know some some english uh uh packaging and some drugs and i i could pick which to take and and got it got it knocked out uh when i got back so uh I, i'm i'm well aware of the cold it's it's that that time of year and uh hopefully uh hopefully you're able to kick this one uh pretty soon as well yeah i think i'm on the tail end of it so so that's good the last two days were rough well, uh, well, well, well. Good luck with that, uh, especially with uh, Thanksgiving coming up. We don't want to, we don't want to yeah. uh, get in the way of having a, a good Thanksgiving meal, right? That's right. That's right. So, um, you had you recently announced that you are running for vice president of U.S. Soccer. That election is in February, uh, this coming February in Nashville, at the U.S. Yeah. Soccer AGM. Uh, this is a position you held um, about twenty years ago. Um, and uh, in the meantime, you've been doing a lot of work in the game of soccer. Where before we get into all of that, where where did this love affair with the game begin for you that has turned into a, a lifelong passion? It, it sure has been a lifelong passion. Um, when when I was a little kid, when I was actually probably a toddler, my dad, my parents came from Portugal. My entire family came from Portugal. And we, they all settled in a town called Bristol in the state of Rhode Island. That town was pretty much comprised of a lot of Portuguese immigrants. And my dad, my uncles, and his friends got together and started the first soccer club in the town of Bristol called the Bristol Sports Club, which is still in existence today. And um, when they put the club together, they, they made a soccer team and you know, I was on a soccer field as a toddler all the way till today. So I've been with the game my entire life uh, and love it. So um, with with that background, that kind of immigrant story, immigrant background, uh, what was that like growing up in terms of the game? Because a lot of people just assume Growing up in America, you have kind of this kind of traditional American soccer, you know, relationship with the game. But your family coming from Portugal um, and and being kind of this Portuguese community, did you feel like it was similar to what a lot of American soccer kids grow up with today, or or was it kind of like a little miniature pocket of Europe in in Bristol, Rhode Island? Well, it was actually a miniature pocket of Portugal. Um, you know, when I was growing up in the, in the New England area, they had a league called the Laza League, which was the Luso American Soccer Association, which was comprised of, um, you know, all Portuguese clubs in New England from Rhode Island, predominantly Rhode Island and Connecticut. And uh, those teams were, I mean, as good as any team you can think of at that time, which this is probably seventies, eighties, there was no professional leagues in per se in the United States. So that was considered the, one of the top leagues in the country. As a matter of fact, referees who wanted to go into the international arena and become a FIFA referees were kind of told that you need to, referee in the Lazali to prove that you're good enough to go to international matches. So it was, it was the training grounds for referees who wanted to become FIFA referees. So that league in itself was pretty much predominantly Portuguese immigrants, great soccer players, great soccer. And the, the style of play they kind of played was European soccer. And uh, that's what I grew up with. I mean, every Sunday I was on a soccer field watching these games as a kid growing up. Transference is something that uh, I talk about on the show from time to time. And it's just that kind of mentorship through, you know, modeling and watching and kind of absorbing. Um, and, and that 
is is where we get culture that that we mm-hmm. really need in this country a, a true footballing soccer culture um and uh, it, I, I have found that in in various uh kind of you know communities where where football is at the top of the chain or in terms of you know passions and sports and things that they follow um one of the other aspects uh that you have been passionate about um in in your work within american soccer is referees where did that uh passion for you and and connection to referees begin and why do you why do you place such a priority on that well i i mean i never in my dreams when i was playing soccer thought i'd ever become a referee and i can remember vividly i was playing amateur soccer in new hampshire and we were in the state championship game. And, you know, at that time, which was probably in the 80s, late 80s, you know, New Hampshire didn't have a lot of soccer. So the referees in New Hampshire didn't have a lot of experience. And I can remember that the referees at that game were doing a very poor job. And, you know, as players, we get upset when we don't have a good referee. And the state president and the state referee administrator were at the game. And when the game ended, <clears throat> I um, went up to them and said, you know something, you guys don't have any referees in this state that can do games at this level. Shame on you. And they challenged me to become a referee. They said, can you do better? Become a referee. So I took the course and became a referee. And one thing I can say is you know, I've done a lot with soccer. One of my best memories and what I got the most satisfaction on was become, was being a referee. So you, you, t- you, you take on that challenge, you know, Hey, well, you think you can do better. You become a referee and, uh, and, and, and enter into that kind of, uh, world of, of a, a different look at the game at what point did you transition into uh governance and, and working on leadership and trying to to help guide u.s soccer at large or maybe at a state level did it start for you in new hampshire or what, what was kind of that that next step for you well when i when i was in new hampshire i um i you know went to watch some high school soccer games People saw me there and asked me, you know, did I have friends who were playing soccer at the high school level? And I told them, no, I, I just love the game and I come to watch the game. And the state president at that time said, well, we need people like you at the state level and invited me to a state meeting, which I attended. And at that meeting, he made me the state registrar, gave me a position. Um, when he retired a couple of years later, I ran for president and became president of New Hampshire Soccer Association, which I did from 1988 through 1998. And uh, from there, uh, did you did you take on an open run for U.S. vice president or had you already looked at making a transition into some other organizations before you you took on that challenge? Well, in 98, and I I was president for 10 years with New Hampshire soccer, so I got to know almost everyone involved in soccer at the national level, going to the AGMs, going to the conventions, soccer events. I I got to, you know, know pretty much everyone around the country. So in 98, when the vice president of U.S. soccer's position came available, I says, well, you know, I've been involved 10 years. I think I'm going to throw my name in the hat. And I did. I decided to run for vice president in 1998. And I, I happened to win the election. And I that's when I resigned as president of New Hampshire soccer. So um, from from there, you have continued to be involved in the game in various ways, uh, working uh, on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors, uh, helping with the referee committee in the past, uh, being the president of U.S. Adult Soccer, uh, which is a, a national um, organization uh, that uh, primarily uh, sanctions and handles uh 
adult amateur soccer in the country for all um, you know state associations. And uh, in that time, have continued to forge deep relationships and 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 build relationships, new relationships, all over the country, um, which leads us to where we are now, which is the upcoming 2020 vice presidential election. You have decided again to uh, throw uh, your name in the hat and uh, put yourself up for uh, vice president of U.S. Soccer. Why now and why this position? Well, I'll be going on my seventh year as president of U.S. Adult Soccer. You know, I think it's time to transition into something else. And the next logical step would be the vice president of U.S. Soccer. Um, I, 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 I think I have a lot to offer as the vice president of U.S. Soccer. Uh, my experience, you know, I've touched the games, the game at all levels. You know, as you said, a player, a referee, I did coach uh, at the, uh, uh, during my career administratively. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know, but in, I also owned a Division three professional team. I was the founder of the New Hampshire Phantoms in the early 90s. And so I think I've, I've got the understanding of the game at a lot of different levels. So I think because of my experience on all these different levels, I think I've got a lot that I can bring to the table of U.S. soccer. Now, I've been a little critical of uh, some of the things within U.S. soccer as it regards to uh, recently administrative, some things that I just see is like, you know, basic dotting of I's, crossing of T's. Uh, I'll give you an example. The other day, our U.S. U23 uh, team uh, had a match and there was there was nothing put out uh, from officially from U.S. soccer promoting the match until the match was about six, seven, eight minutes into the match. And then finally, uh, uh, you know, tweets and other, um, you know, communications were sent out that there was actually a match on uh, but that communication went out a little bit late um, when when we look at just basic um, you know operations of US soccer communications um, public communications promoting the sport etc uh, with your you know business background your your administrative background within uh, American soccer is that an area you feel like you could help support uh, you know the the goal of the federation to continue to, to try to make soccer the preeminent sport in America by, by maybe helping make sure that we have some of these administrative um, you know communications aspects uh you know i guess a little bit uh more professional or or on time in terms of of notifications is that is that an area where you feel like you, your expertise could help uh us well, be a better run organization well i i think the organization is run well uh i mean do certain things fall through the cracks once in a while i'm sure they do uh, but the one thing that people know about me is that, you know, I, 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 I am a communicator. I am the type of person that, you know, I believe this is our federation, you know, not my federation. So, you know, other than confidential matters, you know, I see no reason why we can't keep our members informed. Uh, I try to do that with uh, the U.S. adult soccer members, um, you know, following every U.S. soccer meeting. Within the next few days, I send all my members a, you know, uh, notes on what happened during the U.S. soccer meeting just to keep them all informed. Uh, I do the same when we do with our board meetings, uh, U.S. adult soccer. I send a, a list of, you know, action items and what we discuss to the membership because I believe that, you know, you need to communicate with the members to keep them informed, let them know what's going on. Uh, and again, you know, I think that's one of my fortes is that, you know, I do communicate and I do try to keep my members informed. Looking at the position of vice president, uh, what are some of the roles or duties of the vice president that you feel like you would do very well at uh, in, in maybe being 
part of the reason why you're looking at this position. How do you, how do you think the position matches the person, John Mata? Oh, good question. Um, I think I fit that position to a T. And the reason why is, you know, I came from the membership. You know, I started as a kid playing soccer. I got involved administratively. So I've been involved with the membership. I was president of New Hampshire soccer 10 years. I was involved in leagues, professional teams. So I'm a big believer that the membership is the most important part of this organization. Because I own my own business and I'm pretty much my children run the business, I have all the time in the world to meet and deal with our members. Um, one of the things, you know, I've been hearing during my campaigning is, you know, the lack of dealing with members and they feel that, you know, they're not being, you know, not to say a better word, respected. And I think that because of, you know, I'm independent, I own my own business, uh, I have the time to dedicate to the membership. I can attend their events. I can deal with any issues they have. I can go to their meetings. Uh, I would be there for the members. That is uh, definitely uh, echoing things that we heard during the 2018 presidential election uh, when I was uh, running Eric Winalda's campaign for president of U.S. soccer. Uh, over and over again uh, from the membership, there was this sense of not being heard and, uh, and, and kind of being on the periphery of U.S. soccer, even though, as you mentioned, uh, U.S. soccer is a member uh, run and member uh, organization. It, it's very um, structure is built around membership. And, uh, and so I, I hear those same sentiments uh, that you're bringing up uh, being echoed yet again in, in your run for the 2020 vice presidential um, spot uh, that the membership want to, to be listened to and, and, and feel like they are, you know, part of the, uh, the federation and part of the solution to growing the federation um there's that that famous leadership uh quote that says people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care and i think listening is is a way uh to really you know communicate and connect uh with the membership um to really hear their their issues and and then you know obviously you know your solution and their solution may not always be the same solution, but you at least know what their problems are and can try to work to come to some resolution um, that uh, continues to grow the game and make it better at all levels. How has, how has your, your recent, you know, uh, stretch as president of us adult soccer helped you get to know and network um, with people across the country at the, at the grassroots level? How has that, how has that helped you? Is it giving you a better, you know, understanding, you know, from an empathy standpoint to really, get a feeling of where people are. So you have kind of a, a good understanding of what's going on. How has that position helped you connect to the masses, even at the grassroots level across the country? Well, I, I attend a lot of soccer events all over the country. I mean, I, I get invited to different, you know, state association events, whether it's their hall of fame dinner, whether it's, uh, you know, a, a tournament they're holding and I try to make as many as those as I can. So, you know, I go to these events, I hear what people say, they tell me their concerns, they tell me what's going on. I still have grandkids that are playing soccer. So every chance I get, I go watch my grandkids, see what's happening at the youth level, hear what's going, what's going on with the youth level, hear what the people are saying, the parents. So, you know, I still attend a lot of the memberships events where I, you know, have my ear to the ground, listening to what they're saying. Uh, the one thing I will say also is, you know, my cell phone is pretty much, I post it publicly everywhere. It's on my Facebook page. It's on my Twitter page and anyone can call me at any time and ask me questions. 
And one thing my members at U.S. Adult Soccer will attest to is that when they call me, I pick up the phone. Unless I'm in a meeting or I, you know, or I can't pick it up. But I do return the call that same day. So people who want to be heard will know that I would be available pretty much 24-7 to listen to their concerns. I can attest to that myself, uh, having talked to you over the years. Uh, and um, that's not just something that you do while you're running for vice president. That is just part of who you are. Um, uh, and, and, and your accessibility, um, I think, is, is a big strength. Uh, you're not you know, hiding on the periphery. You're not uh, elusive. Uh, you are more than willing to engage so much so that you, uh, as you mentioned, publicly uh, post your your phone number for anyone to be able to get a hold of you. Um, and that accessibility, um, I think, goes a long way to connect with the members. Uh, it's a way that you you know, if, if I'm running a, a state association or some other member organization um you know part of being listened to is is to have access to someone uh to to, to listen to me and sure. uh, and the fact that you make yourself available uh, i think is uh really really good and um i wish we could see more of that throughout the federation because I, I do think we need to continue to work towards a sense of togetherness unity communication um coming you know this this coming together as one to to build a better soccer future for this country uh, at all levels um, yep. And I think there there are things that we can all do to help each other to get better. Um, and listening and being accessible to me are kind of like uh, really good starting points in in entry places uh, to begin that process. When you look at uh, the American soccer landscape. Um, you're on the U.S. Soccer Board of Directors. You are the president of U.S. Adult Soccer. You're running for vice president of U.S. Soccer. Um, there are a lot of different issues, um, you know, big picture issues um, that we're facing as a country uh, in terms of American soccer. There is this growth in the women's game that is, uh, you know, picking up and building off of the momentum of our U uh, S women's national team world cup victory. And we're seeing enthusiasm for the women's game continue to grow um, in your time uh, in, in working within U S soccer uh, and looking into the future. What are some things you feel like you could do to help, continue that momentum of building the women's game here in the U.S.? Well, during the 1999 World Cup, I was heavily involved with that women's national team. I traveled with them to Portugal. I traveled to them throughout the country. So I had a lot of time with that team, with Tony DeChico and, you know, the entire team. Um, you know, we do have a great women's national team the best in the world but as we see the rest of the world is slowly creeping up so we got to ensure that you know we keep our women number one and you know i'm not the you know expert on the technical uh merits of what the team needs but you know we gotta stay on top of it and understand what are their needs for us to remain the number one country in the world for women's soccer. And, and I would support that. Do you feel like um, over the next, say, five to ten years, um, that the, the non-U.S. women's national team part of the game, so the elite amateur, uh, which we see a lot of with like the WPSL, for example, mm -hmm. um, the NWSL, the USL recently uh, announced some some plans or at least uh, uh, an announcement about the idea of, a, of an, another women's professional soccer league. Um, 
do you think over the next five to 10 years that we're going to continue to see that side of the game domestically continue to grow? And if so, what kind of role do you think the Federation can play in helping, uh, you know, build our lead, our advantage over the rest of the world in terms of our, you know, women's program in general to ensure that we do uh, are able to, uh, to stay on top going forward? Well, I mean, as the president of, let's say, U.S. adults, for an example, we have in the last year have had a very high focus on the women's game. As a matter of fact, we're bringing back the Women's Amateur National Cup, which has been kind of on hiatus for the last three or four years. So we feel that it's important, even at the amateur level, that you know we bring back this high-level tournament to give our women the opportunity to compete at a high level, you know, and then, you know, one of the things we got to continue to look at is, you know, the development of our, our young athletes. And, you know, one thing I look at is, you know, what has been successful for us in the past. And one thing I look at is, you know, up to, up until two years ago, we did not have, a girls academy program at u.s soccer so where did we develop these girls that won you know national i mean world cups in the past well you look at the youth program and usys united states youth soccer in my opinion had a successful odp program so <clears throat> why don't we continue to take a look at the ODP program also and see, you know, what parts of the ODP program were successful. How did we identify players and kind of bring them back into the fold also? So, you know, we can't just look at the development Academy as that is the only program to identify players. We got to cast a bigger net on players to expand it. Uh, out into other areas of the country that may not have academy programs. Completely uh, and completely agree with you. Um, my my uh, w- one of my last questions here is: your your parents came from Portugal. You you talked about your early story growing up um, there in in Bristol, Rhode Island, in a in a Portuguese community, playing in a Portuguese sporting club in in a Portuguese league. Um, immigrant is, is a word that would be attached to your story as an American. And, um, there's, we, when we look at the country at large, um, in American soccer, um, we often find immigrant communities on the outside looking in. Uh, there's a word that is used within the Federation, uh, called unsanctioned soccer, um, Mm -hmm. which is basically all of these uh, leagues that operate uh, outside of any type of sanctioning from uh, U.S. soccer. They are not, just for the audience purposes, uh, educational, they're not illegal from a U.S. governmental standpoint. They're just not part of the FIFA umbrella of sanctioned leagues, which that sanctioning for an American league would have to come through the U S soccer Federation directly or indirectly through one of U S soccer's members like U S adult soccer, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, So looking at the country at large, we do have uh, a lot of these unsanctioned leagues. I know in Atlanta, there's an adult league there um, that has, uh, I think, like 4,000 registered players, but are not in a sanctioned league uh, Mm -hmm. with the Federation. And there are other countless leagues around the country 
that are um, playing and operating. For example, I know that there's uh, quite a few at the U.S. Soccer House that play in unsanctioned yeah. leagues there in Chicago. Yeah. Um, you know, and 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 so we see this around the country as a federation. You talked about, you know, communication. You talked about accessibility and, and listening. What can we do as a federation to be more inclusive and bring into the U.S. soccer family the, the, this whole area of the sport in this country that is classified right now as unsanctioned soccer? Yeah, good question. And as president of U.S. adult soccer, we know that is a huge issue. I, we can guarantee that there are over 1 million adults playing soccer in this country in unsanctioned leagues. And the big question is, how do we get them to become a member? You know, one of my proposals and one thing I would bring to the table is, you know, I really think that the Federation needs to get serious and put together a, you know, whether you call it a Latino task force or some type of a task force on how do we attract and how do we engage the Latino community in all these unsanctioned leagues out there. One thing that, I, that I've always said is there is a lot of power in the shield of U.S. soccer. There's even bigger power in that community with the FIFA logo. Everyone knows and understands the FIFA logo. Most people understand the U.S. soccer logo. So we got to use that to our advantage and to show these people the importance of being a member. What can we offer them that would make it enticing for them to become a member? And, you know, the one, one thing I think we should do immediately is put a task force together of people that are involved in those communities, people that understand those communities, people that talk to those communities, get them on a task force, let's get the ideas on the table, and then let's reach out to them and make them want to be a part of U.S. soccer. I completely agree. Uh, having uh, been involved and worked in that space over the years, um, you know, a little bit of uh, rolling up of the sleeves and and mm-hmm. and you know, getting to know people is a, is a really good first step, and building relationships. Uh, and over time, I think we can we can come to a place uh, where we can cross that divide um, as a country uh, if we get serious about it. And, and I like your idea of having some type of diversity task force. I know the Federation mm-hmm. has had that in the past, doesn't presently have one. I do think that would be a good step um, in that direction of, of having a dedicated uh, group of people working on the issue. Um, as you mentioned, your estimation of more than 1 million uh, players playing unsanctioned soccer in this country uh i i regularly encounter people that don't realize they completely underestimate uh how big the sport is in this country and how big it can become in this country and um and i think we are just scratching the surface of our potential and uh we need more people uh like you who uh can help us get us you know, to that place. So anyone watching, anyone listening uh, to this interview, how can they connect with you and uh, get to know more about you? And if they're uh, a member of a state association or, or other member organization, and they want to learn more about some of your ideas and thoughts about how to improve the game, how can they connect with you? Um, you know, social media, email, whatever, uh, to, to follow your journey as you run for vice president of U.S. Soccer. Well, all of the above. I mean, I've got a Twitter page and it's at John P. Mata. So it's very obvious what my what my Twitter page is. It's my my name. Uh, I've got a Facebook page, John Mata also. And my email address is soccer as the sport. J as in John, P as in Peter, M as in Mary at AOL.com. And I don't want your viewers to laugh at me because I still have an AOL account. But Believe it or not, that was my very first email account, and I've never changed it. So I stuck with it until today. 
That is hilarious because I, is. I wasn't going to wait on our viewers. I was about to come at. <laughs> I know come my kids. You. My kids come at me all the time. Says that get with the times. But like I, was, I said, that's my first email address ever. I've never, never changed my email address. I use it for my business, my soccer, for everything. That's too funny. I um, I was I was watching uh the other day. It came on came on TV. You've got mail, and yeah. uh, and, and, and yeah, the old dial up AOL. And my kid walks in the room. He's like, Dad, what's that sound? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, but yeah, I remember. I still have it. <laughs> I don't have. I don't have the sound. They they've gotten better, but it's the same email address. Oh, that's so, too funny. You well, know, the other thing I will say also is sure. that you know, you know, like I said, I I come from Portuguese parents. My, my wife came from Portugal, so I'm also fluent in Portuguese language. I can communicate in the Spanish language. So, you know, as vice president and when you're dealing with other countries, I think it's always helps that, you know, you have somebody on the board that can communicate with some of these people in their own language. So, so I think that that's also a, a plus I'd like to throw out there. I agree. Um, and in your experience already having served in the position and, and continue to stay involved even after that service as, as U.S. soccer vice president, I think, uh, you know, when you look at your resume and your experience, uh, your expertise, your abilities, um, you know, it, it is a long and extensive list, and uh, I do wish you the best of luck as you run uh, for vice president. Look forward to uh, seeing you there in Nashville uh, in February yeah. for sure, and yeah. um, would encourage everyone watching and listening to, uh, if you are a, a member of an organization, reach out to John. If you're not a member of an organization, my first uh, you know admonishment would be uh, join one and get involved and secondly uh reach out to those you know who are already involved and encourage them to connect with john uh we yeah. need we need poor, more people like him to, to continue help build the sport in this country john thanks for coming on uh i know you were you're battling a cold <laughs> yeah um, and, I, and i want to apologize to everyone if they couldn't understand me very well but I did the best I can. Well, you did great. And we appreciate you being a trooper. Um, and, and I, I understand what it's like to, to deal with that and, uh, wish you a speedy recovery, a happy Thanksgiving and holiday season. Look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks for coming on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. Have a, have a, a happy Thanksgiving also. Thank you. That is John Mata, president of U.S. Adult Soccer. like to thank him for coming on the show, for sharing his ideas, his thoughts on uh, not only his background and experience, but uh, how to grow and help the, uh, the game of soccer in this country. Best of luck to him as he runs for vice president of U.S. Soccer with the election coming up in February 2020. Our sponsor this half hour is Charity water you can learn more about charity water at charitywater.org learn more about that story and make it part of your story at charitywater.org we'll be right back after this no one no man no woman no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs with algae with disease in it water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world we know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth and when you can bring water into communities it truly transforms them it changes everything now you could know that you'd made a difference you could know that you had truly impacted the lives of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens.
Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in on this Friday, November the 22nd. I'd like to thank John Mata for joining us today. And um, I know he was battling through a cold and um, apologize if there was any audio issues understanding him. But uh, hopefully you, you were able to hear his thoughts and his insights. The man has... Uh, worked within U.S. soccer at all levels of the game for decades. And um, it, it's it's really good to hear from him and, and hear his ideas, some of his thoughts about where we can go from here. How can we get better? How can we do more to connect with more people around the country as well? And, um, you know, I, I hope uh, and, and wish him the best of luck as he runs for uh, U.S. Soccer Vice President, um, and uh, that election will take place in February at the uh, U.S. Soccer Annual General Meeting in Nashville. Um, You do not have to be a voting member to attend. You can register and attend the event or come hang out in Nashville. We'll be there. We're going to do some some shows while we're there and uh, some other uh, shows as well beyond just the Daniel Wortman show. So um, I will have some more information on that as we get a little bit closer. But if you're going to be there, be around or want to come hang out, uh, come hang out on the show, whatever, we will uh, we would love to have you and uh, and we will as we get closer we'll we'll roll out some of those details uh of how you can uh come hang out with the show be on the show um whatever um i'd love to i love connecting with people and connecting with people all over the country um we started the show off and i was i was looking at this article from gold.com um, about why are there not more black coaches in American soccer? And I think it speaks to a larger issue. I would encourage you to go read the entire article on gold.com. Uh, again, that article headline uh, of that article is why aren't there more black coaches in American soccer by John Arnold? That's on gold.com. Um, just, you know, it's, it's, it's a worthy read and a topic that we don't talk about enough, which is getting more people involved, re- regardless of your ethnicity, your, um, your you know, socioeconomic status, your background, skin color, what have you. Uh, we don't have a merit-based system. We don't have a meritocracy in this country when it comes to American soccer. It's, it's about relationships and gatekeepers and, um, and money. And it's, and it's not about how good you are. It's about access and private access and, and, and building relationships. And the first part of that article kind of really highlighted how, you know, several of these guys who we know as players or know as people that have, you know, been in the game at some level, um, you know, have experienced for themselves that even though they've been at that level, it still wasn't enough or hasn't been enough for them to get more opportunities and chances. And uh, they, you know, not having the right relationship, shaking the right hands, they feel has been part of why they've not gotten uh, certain access. And I do think that is is a larger point um, that we have to look at when we look at uh, unsanctioned soccer, for example. I think it's 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 the same issue um, on a on a macro level now. On a micro level, it's it, it's obviously different. Unsanctioned soccer is not the same as um, not having enough black coaches. But when we when we zoom out, and this is why it's important to always look at the why behind the what. Why are we doing what we're doing? Guides us in what we end up doing, when we do it, how we do it. And when we look at the principles of American soccer, the principles of the U S soccer Federation specifically, when we get to the, the why, why are we doing what we're doing? When we get into our purpose, even though our mission statement might say to make soccer, the preeminent sport in this country, we're not actually operating on that. Why? Because all of our decisions are not lining up with making soccer the preeminent sport in this country. If we were, we would try to get these 1 million unsanctioned players. We would be trying to get the best coaches regardless of their background or their skin color or any other number of factors. 
So the why behind the what is so important. And I think it is something that we uh, need to continue to do uh, more and more of a look at in terms of where we go from here. How do we get better from here? This closed mentality, this limited uh, artificial scarcity um, system that we have doesn't line up with our why to make soccer the preeminent sport in this country. That's to make soccer the preeminent sport for a few dozen markets, but not the entire country. So when we get back to our mission statement of making soccer the the preeminent sport in America, what we really need to look at is the why and then let that influence what we do, how we do it, when we do it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want to close today's show by uh because we will not be around next week we're going to take the week off and hope you enjoy the week off uh or the days off or thanksgiving whatever to celebrate friends and family and and all of that and gratitude i want to close today's show uh just uh with uh what i'm thankful for um in my life as well as um in in the in the world of of soccer as well i i'm definitely thankful for my wife and my kids and my family um this week my my wife and i celebrated our our 19th wedding anniversary um and um we we got married really young and uh high school sweethearts and and you know been together a very very long time last night we were at a family uh, uh birthday dinner for my nephew and uh, my sister-in-law said that you've been in my life longer than you've not been in my life and i said well welcome to the blessed life <laughs> and uh, uh we had some good fun and good laughs last night but uh, i am very thankful for my family uh and and all that they mean to me and and hopefully uh what I mean to them. Um, and, uh, I'm thankful for, for my friends. Um, and, and many of you, we have connected through social media. We talked about it earlier this week about, um, you know, the connections that we've made, uh, around the world, uh, all over this country. And, uh, I'm thankful for social media that's given us these platforms and tools to connect and for, um, the ability to build relationships. I've met really, really incredible people. John Mata is one of them who I've met over the years. And it's, it's just really cool to see, um, what tools like that have, have, been able to produce in terms of connections and relationships. I'd like to also thank you who have watched and supported the show. And, and, um, you know, it's, it really means a lot to me. Um, we are in the very, I mean, we are still just barely into this, uh, project of what we're really ultimately trying to build out. And, um, in, in, when you zoom out, it can be kind of daunting, but we just each day try to do it a little bit better. And, for a little while longer and, and keep building. And, um, you know, I'm thankful that we're, we're able to do that. And we, we hope to continue to be able to do that, uh, for a long time to come. And, um, I would just encourage all of you to take a moment over the, uh, the next few days, maybe Thanksgiving day itself. And, and, um, you know, have an attitude of gratitude as I tell my kids and, um, you know, find things to be thankful for, uh, no matter how bad it might be in life right now for you, no matter what you think is absolutely the worst, uh, or, or awful or evil or whatever the case may be. Um, gratitude can go a long way to healing and, and helping, uh, us. And, um, I would hope that, uh, that we all take a moment to find things we're grateful for over the next few days. Thanks for watching the show. As always, thanks for listening. You can watch on facebook.com and at danielworkman.com. Uh, also, uh, catch me on Twitter or Instagram at Daniel Workman. 
when we come back uh, on December the 2nd, we will be off next week. When we come back on December the 2nd, we hope to be rolled out on even more platforms and channels. So stay tuned for that. We'll have some uh, news as we build towards December the 2nd in regards to uh, some more distribution and ways that you can watch and, and listen to the show. Thanks again. Have a great Thanksgiving. We'll see everyone again in about a week. Goodbye.